from the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. Hear now the word of the Lord. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with anyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. Thus says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. It's been a little while since we talked about hell at Dauphin Way. Oh, everybody got nervous. It's not that we haven't mentioned it here and there along the way. It's just that it's been a while since we had a whole sermon on it. It's been 59 weeks, as a matter of fact, just over a year. I know that for sure, because I remember it very clearly. I felt like Ebenezer Scrooge ruining Christmas on the last Sunday of Advent in 2021. It was the day we celebrated Kathy's 50th anniversary of her ministry here. And that Sunday was also the Sunday for various reasons that Woods and I had set aside to preach about hell. When it was all done, nobody came after us with pitchforks. Few people said they really appreciated it. And last fall, when Woods and I began preparing for a sermon series, to tackle some of the biggest obstacles of faith, the things that keep us from trusting God. We asked Brittany Dang, our youth director, what sorts of issues come up most often among our youth? And she said that it is the church's teaching around hell and judgment that sparks as many questions and concerns as any other. And so, here we are again. Back when we talked about hell for Christmas, I point to the story of Bob Cratchit, who begged for a single coal from Ebenezer Scrooge. And I mentioned how most of us would think of coal as a punishment, but for him it would have been a gift beyond all imagining. And we talked about how the same gift can mean different things to different people. But I wonder if that story is just a little too metaphorical. And so today I thought I'd tell a real and fair warning, heartbreaking story. About 12 years ago, when I was still very young in ministry, my family was all gathered for Christmas. We were all younger back then. 
My sister was just about to graduate from college. My brother was about a year away from going to seminary himself. I was just in uh, my beginning my third year of ministry. Jennifer and I were celebrating our first Christmas with our first baby. And somehow, while we were all sitting around with my family, the conversation turned to heroes. And I think it was my brother who asked my dad, who are some of your role models, dad? My father mentioned a pastor whom we all knew, who'd been an associate for only about three or four years at our home church, but who had made such an impression on us. I'll call him Barnabas because he had an encouraging presence, like the great encourager of the book of Acts. He was an incredible, incredible gifted person in our lives. And no sooner had dad mentioned him than we all agreed. And it was either I or my brother who said that if we could have one model for our ministry, it would be this Barnabas. And wouldn't you know, a month later, I saw him at a denominational meeting and I told him about this conversation, how grateful I was for his ministry, for his role in my life how grateful all my family were for him. And you know what? The strangest thing happened. When I told him, you know, you should know that you are a role model to people 20 years older and 10 years younger than you are. The look on his face was a wince. He was in pain. And then he said something nice or gracious in return, but I could not help feeling as though I had offended him or hurt him somehow. And about two months later, he told his wife he was leaving. And shortly after that, he was out of ministry. And within a year, he went public with his relationship with a woman from the congregation. And I never had a chance to ask him. But in my mind, there is no question why he winced when I told him that he was somebody's hero. I think he winced because he knew it was true. He knew how much he meant to people. And he also knew that was only half the truth. And I think that when you live with only half the truth, your life must be a living hell. It's a strange thing that Paul asks us to do in Romans chapter 12. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. It is strange because it is countercultural. I mean, anyone could say, ignore your enemies. Anyone could say, shake them off. If you're a really, really good person, maybe you could bring yourself to be polite to your enemies. How many times have you heard someone say, Well, as a Christian, of course, I love my neighbor. I don't want anything bad to happen to them. In case you were wondering, that's not what it means to love somebody. Loving someone is not simply not wishing them ill. Paul builds on Jesus' command to all of us that we should love our enemies by making it very specific what that looks like. Feed them in their hunger. Give them something to drink in their thirst. Actively care for your enemies. Proactively tend to their needs. It is a wild thing that Paul is telling us to do. 
but even wilder than what he is asking is his explanation of what happens when we do. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. I wonder, when you've been so tangled up in your own stuff, so deep down in it, that when something good came into your life, it actually made you wince. Maybe it was just when the help that you needed or the gift that you hoped for, the thing, the answer to everything you'd been waiting on came from someone who rubbed you the wrong way or maybe someone you couldn't bear to face. Maybe it was when you had to say thank you but you only half meant it. When the Bible describes the glory and the presence of God, it most often describes God's presence in two ways, as light and as heat. God led the people of Israel by a pillar of fire. The transfiguration Jesus shone so brightly, we're told it was almost blinding. The book of Revelation promises us that in the new heaven and the new earth, we won't even need a sun anymore because God's presence will be our sun in a perpetual day. God's glory is light and it is heat and the glory of the Lord is a fire. So isn't it interesting that when the scriptures talk of hell, they also talk in terms of fire. But whenever the scriptures talk about the fires of hell, those fires give plenty of heat and no light. Hell is a place of fire, yes, but it's also the outer darkness, the place of night. It's an abyss. It's almost like having half the gift is worse than no gift at all. When I was growing up, I heard more than a few times that hell must be the experience of the absence of God. The picture I held in my own mind was of a day like the one described in Matthew 25 when Jesus describes a day of judgment where God will come in glory on a throne and stand before the nations and those who cared for the hungry and the thirsty, those who visited prisons and sick beds and those who clothed those in need and gave shelters to strangers, to them God will say, come and inherit the kingdom. And to those who mostly ignored the hungry and the thirsty, who mostly avoided prisons and sick beds, who could not be bothered to share their clothing or their shelter, to them God would say, depart from me into the eternal fire. And in hearing that account of hell, I understood that the departing was essential to the experience, as essential as the fire. It's a plain, obvious reading the passage and of some others, that there will come a moment when God has had enough, when time is up and God says, look, we cannot have these kinds of shenanigans in heaven. And every so often I would, with a childlike faith, wonder, but is that really loving? To which my well-intentioned teacher, teachers and preachers would say, well, it's not really for us to tell God what counts as love. Just keep trusting and obeying, and one day you'll see how it's love. 
But of course, Matthew 25 doesn't tell the whole story. If it did, we would not need a cross. Jesus would never have needed to die and be raised if that's all there is to it. That if you do right things, all works out. And if you don't, it doesn't. We wouldn't need a cross for that. And the longer I followed Jesus, and the more I read my Bible, the more the Bible itself rebels against the idea that anything could be described as the absence of God. God is the creator of everything, of all things seen and unseen. God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. John 1 says, without him, nothing was made that has been made. Suffice to say, biblical faith does not say that the absence of God is hell. No, biblical faith says that the absence of God is nothing at all. Emptiness, absence, and a void. And if you read more of the Bible, there are other challenges as well. If 1 Peter tells us that God desires for all to be saved, and if John 3.17 says that God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. And if 1 Timothy 4.10 is telling the truth, when it says, quote, God is the salvation of all and especially of those who believe. And if the very promise of Christmas is that God is Emmanuel, God with us, then how could God ever give up on any of that without breaking God's own promise? We worship a faithful God who wants to keep every promise. And we worship a sovereign God who can keep every promise. And if we are to be biblical in talking about hell, it is far more honest to say that hell is not God's rejection of us. Or in the words of C.S. Lewis, that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. Hell is when God loves us too much to abandon us and too much to break our free will. Hell is when God offers to show us the light, but we turn our backs, and so all that we feel is the heat. And we have just half the gift. Hell is what we do to each other. It's what we do to ourselves when the goodness of God rubs us the wrong way. And sometimes, just like heaven, we get glimpses of hell on earth. You remember that when Jesus was born, it caused shepherds to shout and sing, caused magi to follow a star. But perhaps you remember what a man named Herod did, the part we never tell in the Christmas story. Herod heard that there was a new king born in a backwater called Bethlehem. And when Herod heard that, to him, it was not good news. All he could imagine was what this new king might cost him. If you've never read Matthew 2 all the way through, if you've never heard of the passage we call the horror of the massacre of the innocents, then I am sorry to be the one to tell you about it. But suffice to say, it is terrifying how the same gift can mean different things to different people. 
For what it's worth, Christians have been talking about hell for a long time, and in all that time, there are still plenty of questions, debates that have smoldered for centuries about whether to understand it as a temporary experience or an everlasting one, about whether Jesus descended there on the day before Easter. There are variables and questions and intricacies to consider, and if this was a lecture and not a sermon on trust, I could keep you here for an hour going through it all. But after all the questions had been asked and answered and all the scripture verses had been properly weighed, it would still come down to this, that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And last week, we said that when we say Jesus Christ is Lord of all, that doesn't mean that everything happens is his will. What it does mean is that one day, God will bring everything to light. Everything. And I can't think it about how many chances that Barnabas had to tell the truth and how much worse it became for him and everyone around him the more he felt the need to hide it every time he hid from it, how it must have pained him until the truth became worse and worse and more and more painful until the day it became a bomb. One day God's light is going to shine into every corner of creation. And as the book of Revelation says, on that day, there will be no night anymore. And that is good news. If only we accept it. But when that day comes, if we stand in our own rightness, insist that it's all a big misunderstanding, if we insist on justifying our lives, if we turn from light to hide in the shadows, then the truth will burn like hell. If we live with only half the truth, if we insist on punishing ourselves in secret rather than seeking confession and forgiveness, then we will have the heat but no light. And in all your turning from God, all your running away from God, you will never outrun God, the God who made you, who loves you, who has come to be with you and will always be right there calling you. You will come to feel the heat of his presence even if you refuse to look him in the face. But if you will turn, you can live the whole, you can live in the whole truth. You can admit your own weaknesses and discover the strength of his grace. And if you will live in that whole truth, the light and the heat, our weakness and God's grace, then God's glory will light the way home and his warmth will welcome you in. And we can find that the first glimpse of heaven comes in learning to admit to ourselves and to God and even to each other all those failings that we try to hide and run away from. We can be honest about ourselves without fearing what we will find. And the more honest we are about our own weakness, the easier it will be to love our own enemies, to recognize their own weakness, and to love them, and even love them well, even if they don't take it well. There's a time, a prayer I pray every time I preach on either heaven or hell. It comes from the Reverend Sam Wells, and I think it's a marvelous prayer because As the book of Romans reminds us, our calling from God is to let our love be sincere. If we love our God, 
If we love our neighbors for what we hope to get out of it, if we are just putting on a show, then it is no longer sincere. It's another attempt to get what we think we deserve. And in the end, the best way, I think, to think about both heaven and hell is to focus on Jesus Christ and not settle for anything less. Would you pray with me? Loving God, if I love thee for hope of heaven, then deny me heaven. If I love thee for fear of hell, then give me hell. But if I love thee for thyself alone, then give me thyself alone. Amen.